0: Welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to be heading back to the convict era to take a look at one particular aspect of the convict system that has not always been well covered in the past. We're going to look at the female convicts who passed through the Cascades female factory in Hobart, Tasmania, and reflect on the different experience that women convicts may have had to those of the male convicts. I visited the remnants of the Cascades' female factory buildings in Hobart earlier this year, and I took a tour with the guide. There are both harrowing and hilarious stories to be told about the institution and its inmates, so we'll focus on the women in that institution in particular as an example of experiences that might have been familiar to most convict women who were sent out to Australia. After serving their sentences, many became successful members of their communities and they are representative of the convict women who can be regarded as the literal mothers of the early Anglo-Australian society here. As always, there'll be some accompanying materials and the reference list at the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And I just wanted to mention two of the books that I've used extensively in this episode were purchased from donations sent to me by listeners last year. So my grateful thanks again for your support. I often use library books, but we'll come back again to the convict stories later, so it was a lovely luxury to be able to purchase the text and to make notes all over them as I read. One title was Tasmania's Convicts, How Felons Built a Free Society, written by historian Alison Alexander. The other was Repression, Reform and Resilience, a History of the Cascades Female Factory, and that was also edited by Alexander. The chapters were written by many known scholars in Tasmanian history, and also contained a number of brief vignettes on individual convict stories, contributed by authors and gathered by the Female Convicts Research Centre. I also bought A Pack of Thieves, 52 Female Factory Lives, which was published through the Port Arthur Historic Sites Management Authority and was written by authors also associated with the Female Convicts Research Centre. And I want to mention also Convict Lives, Women at Cascades Female Factory, which has an introduction by historian Lucy Frost and stories again researched by contributors to the centre. I've drawn heavily from these histories for the snippets that I'll retell to illustrate different experiences. And I would recommend chasing up these titles from the Female Convicts Research Centre if you would like to explore the lives of Cascades convict women further. The authors contributing to the Research Centre have done a brilliant job in chasing down the documents to reconstruct some of these lives. Now, if you've been enjoying the past episodes and you would care to contribute to the research and hosting costs for future episodes, there are options on the webpage for a one-off contribution or a regular monthly coffee price donation, for example, via Patreon. But for now, let's move on to our first look at our convict past. As most people will already know, the history of Anglo-Australians on this continent begins with the relocation of British criminals to set up a convict colony, initially in the area known today as Sydney. Several episodes would be required to discuss the reasons for the colony being settled in Australia, and to reflect on the arrival of the First Fleet, the impact on the First Australians, and recount the first few years as the colony teetered on the edge of failure. So we will come back to looking in-depth at those issues and stories in the future. For now, though, to lead into the history I want to focus on in this episode, the Cascades Female Factory, I will simply say that for a variety of reasons, Britain set up the first Australian penal settlement in New South Wales in 1788, and that others were developed across the continent in the following 60 to 70 years. That first fleet was initially under-provisioned and poorly prepared, and that early settlement nearly came undone to begin with. But the British continued on with its program of sending felons to serve their time in Australia, and within 20 years, the New South Wales settlements had turned around and were prospering. During that period, the French had spent substantial time exploring the Australian coast, focusing in particular on the island of Van Diemen's Land current-day Tasmania, and so, amongst other motivations, there was an early push to create a permanent settlement in Van Diemen's Land. The British felt the need to cement their claim by putting down roots there as well. The first colony in Van Diemen's Land was not intended as a penal settlement at first, like New South Wales, though convicts did accompany the first settlers as unpaid labourers. But of course Van Diemen's Land was later to become synonymous with the harshest elements of the convict penal system, with secondary punishment sites set up at various remote locations, such as Port Arthur and Macquarie Harbour. Again, the history of these places of secondary punishment is fascinating and will warrant their own episodes later on too. So Van Diemen's Land did become, and remains for some, quite a notorious site of incarceration and anguish and many of us may know some of the more sensational stories that came out of that era. Stories like those told in the novel The Term of His Natural Life, or gruesome tales of escaped convicts like Alexander Pierce, who more than once escaped with fellow prisoners only to murder and eat them in the Tasmanian bush. We'll definitely be coming back to some of those stories. Today, we're going to focus in on what was happening in Hobart in particular, between 1803 and 1856, looking at one of the convict depots that was established there to help manage the increasing convict arrivals. To begin with, the British were pretty keen to keep those exploring Frenchies from settling in Van Diemen's Land, so Governor King sent Lieutenant John Bowen south in 1803 and Bowen initially landed the settlers at Risdon Cove, a little way north of current-day Hobart, on the eastern side of the Derwent River. The following year, more colonists arrived directly from England, and Lieutenant Governor Collins relocated the settlement about five kilometres to the south, to Sullivan's Cove, on the western side of the Derwent, where fresh water was more plentiful. And it's this settlement which developed into present-day Hobart being named after the British colonial secretary of that time, Lord Hobart. In the following years, land was granted in the surrounding areas to help attract more free settlers, and Hobart town grew quickly. In an echo of what had occurred in Sydney, the local indigenous population was effectively dispossessed as the settlers moved in. Tasmania has quite a devastating story to tell about its relationship with the Tasmanian Aboriginal peoples, which once again deserves its own episodes to do it justice. So just briefly then, we'll note here that most of what we know about the Indigenous Tasmanians before British settlement is hazy at best. Numbers differ in various sources, but there may have been between six and 8,000 Indigenous Australians living in Tasmania. While it's believed there was little in the way of permanent settlements around Sullivan's Cove, These were traditional hunting grounds for the local peoples, and so there was an immediate disruption to lifestyle when the British settlers arrived and began enclosing the land around there. Captain Cook had stopped in the Derwent River in 1777, and he described the local clan members he saw there, probably those of the Oyster Bay Nation, being of middling stature, slender and naked. On different parts of their bodies were ridges, both straight and curved raised on the skin. The hair of the head and beard was smeared with red ointment, You know they were a hardy lot if they were naked, living in Hobart. (laughs) But that stunning red sort of dreadlock effect in their hair was quite unique to the Tasmanians, as far as I'm aware, and was recorded in some drawings and paintings, so I'll find one to put on the webpage. Other early explorers noted that the locals were often very welcoming initially, sharing food and water, But of course, as they realised these incomers were intent on staying put on their hunting grounds, tensions grew. As had happened in Sydney, there would have been some impact from the new European diseases, and then conflict and appallingly harsh government policy also wreaked havoc. By the 1830s, such a short time later, the remaining indigenous population in Tasmania may have numbered less than 100. As mentioned earlier, this part of the story deserves its own episodes in the future. Getting back to Hobart and today's focus on the Cascades female factory, if you are unfamiliar with the convict system, we'll just consider what that was. Britain's rulers in the 1700s felt overwhelmed by the volume and threat of the criminal classes. It seemed that people in ever greater numbers required harsh punishment. The old approach of simply hanging anyone who poached your rabbits to feed their family was, thankfully, becoming less palatable to the general population. That sentence was seen as generally acceptable only for the most heinous violent crimes. Now that the peasant classes had moved into towns with the Industrial Revolution, the majority of crimes in the towns generally related to property theft, and seemed to be occurring in ever-increasing numbers. So other deterrents and solutions were needed. Locking offenders up in the prisons or prison hulks was expensive for the government and meant that those facilities remained overcrowded and therefore dangerous places of corruption and potential rebellion. Britain was desperate to rid themselves of the problem and one solution was to rid themselves of the criminals by sending them to work in exile. Initially, convicts were sent to the colonies in America to work there as bound labour, but after America gained their independence from Britain, they stopped accepting British convicts, and so only a few years later, the plan was hatched to set up a dedicated convict colony in Australia, far away from the good people of Britain. The reasons and considerations were, of course, more complicated than just that, but for the convicts, the result was transportation to the other side of the world, Obviously the exile was one element of the punishment, but in the colony they were expected to work and be of good behaviour if they wanted to serve out their sentence and have any chance of returning home. Most convicts never did return home, and for some that would have been devastating. But as time moved on from the shaky beginnings, the opportunities available to convicts in the new country increased, particularly as the colony started to prosper and these opportunities were probably much more varied than any previously open to them in the old country. So it wasn't always a bad outcome. For some, they would have been in a healthier environment, perhaps, than the slums of London or Liverpool, for example. And if you could safely navigate the early years, and had a bit of luck, you might be able to really move out of your previous working-class poverty into a new life building businesses or farms, and building assets that could be passed on to a growing family. One woman passing through Cascades, for example, was transported for stealing food and had to leave her family behind, arriving in Hobart aged 40. Most convict women were sentenced to transportation after a string of offences, rather than a first offence usually, so this may have been a pattern for her. The exile of that transportation would have been a shattering price to pay, though, leaving your family behind. But after arriving in Hobart, she was recorded as reoffending only once, being sentenced to one month's hard labour for being drunk and disorderly. Otherwise, she seems to have kept on the right side of the law. The following year she married a farmer, had a son, and appears to have lived a respectable life with her new family in the community until her death, aged 86. That would have been a good innings for a woman reduced to stealing food for a living in the old country. I just have to stop myself thinking about the potential anguish experienced by her and her family in England following that separation, though. Another, Margarita Brimer, transported for life for housebreaking, had a bit of a dodgy start on assignment. She was not once, but twice, sprung in bed with gentleman callers, probably fellow servants, and sent for punishment but she got wise and married an ex-convict publican. This time, the bed-sharing was sanctioned and without further punishment, well, from the state at least, she went on to have nine children over the years. When her husband died, she continued running the successful pub herself and other prosperous businesses and even remarried later, dying in her 70s. She is commemorated by a rather grand vault now at Cornelian Bay Cemetery a memorial fit for a pillar of society, despite her less than salubrious start. For some, the life during and after serving their sentence in the convict colony may have been liberating in a way. Indeed, later there were some that deliberately committed crimes in order to be sent to the colonies, so they might take advantage of the different environment, opportunities and potential. Irish teenager Sydney Keelan stole a cow and she asked to be transported when brought to the court, arriving in Hobart in 1850. But after only one month on assignment, she refused to continue working for that master and was sent back to the female factory to be punished. In 1852, she married a police officer. During the following years, she told the story of her convict experiences publicly, including warning her audiences of the perils of drinking and other bad habits that could lead women to their downfall, and these performances were reported as far away as Ireland. She later became a property developer and died having accumulated substantial cash assets in 1874. Of course, women did not have the same range of opportunities as the men, being restricted in what they could do and what society allowed, but at least out here, there was a bountiful pool of husbands. (laughs) Anywhere between six to ten men for every woman in the colony. While I don't want to underplay the potential trauma of exile and loss of community and family, and of course the harsh and rigid penal system, which controlled all aspects of their lives until they were completely discharged as free, we should also think that for the poorest in the British system, life at home was probably no picnic of abundant choice either. In Alison Alexander's book, Tasmania's Convicts, How Felons Built a Free Society, she reminds us that about 162,000 convicts arrived in Australia in total. The bulk were initially sent to New South Wales, but between 1803 and 1853, 72,500 convicts were sent to Van Diemen's land. So that's approaching almost half of all convicts, a huge number for a small island, even spread across those decades. Nearly 12,500 were convict women. The convicts, of course, would at some point gain their freedom and while there was a bit of movement between Van Diemen's Land and the mainland, very few ever returned to live again in Britain. So a good percentage of Anglo-Australians, making their home across Australia throughout that century, would have previously been convicts, before the gold rushes of the 1850s brought large numbers of new arrivals. So we'll look at how the system worked in Hobart. In that first decade of the 1800s, Free settlers were coming directly from England, and from New South Wales, to Hobart Town. Initially, convicts were sent along also to be allocated as labourers. When the women convicts were sent, they were usually assigned as domestic servants, and they lived with the free settlers and the government officials they were assigned to, amongst the others in the community. That is, not locked up at all in any kind of institution. If they worked well, and behaved in an acceptable way, they were probably living a life not much different to a free and paid domestic servant or labourer, except for the lack of personal agency. But of course women pretty much had very limited choices and opportunities anyway during this era, even if they were free. Later, various secondary punishment penal stations were set up in the more remote areas of Van Diemen's Land, and they became quite infamous sites. Hobart continued to grow, aided by the convict labour. Later still, Hobart and other areas became home to the ex-convicts who had served their terms and were now making a new, free life for themselves. While this may have been a common experience, being an ex-convict still held some stigma, and so the subject of people's background was politely avoided where possible. British government institutions were required to process the incoming convicts into suitable placements to punish those who re-offended, and later to manage the secondary punishment penal stations. They also had a duty of care to convicts who became ill or injured, or who were dismissed from their placements. And there was the records management required for those who were given a ticket of leave, that's a sort of a probation, where the convict still serving their original term could pursue a life themselves in the community rather than being an allocated labourer but who was still monitored and had to report regularly and live under particular conditions until their terms actually expired and they became free citizens. If you listened to the first Australian Histories podcast series on the Kelly gang, you might recall that Ned Kelly's father, Red Kelly, served part of his term in Van Diemen's Land before good behaviour allowed him to get a ticket of leave and to live and work in the community there but he could not leave the state until he was granted his freedom after proving himself completing that probation period. Once he'd served his probationary term and received his Certificate of Freedom, he high-tailed it over to Victoria, quick smart. So as Hobart and other settlements grew, more facilities were built to manage these arrangements, both in Hobart and at other sites across Van Diemen's Land. The authorities needed to manage women convicts differently to the men, During transportation, they had to travel and be housed away from the men, and on arrival were supposed only to be allocated to married households, presumably for the woman's moral and physical safety and security. But unallocated women convicts, or those sent back to the system from their placements, were initially expected to find accommodation in town themselves, awaiting their next assignment so while they were not locked up, it seems that the early days in Hobart town could be a bit precarious for the women, really. Societal expectations of the convict women were ambivalent too. While the women were desirable in the colonies, required to even out the gender balance, and generally seen as having a civilising effect on the rather masculine society, still these particular women were suspect. Convict women were considered the lowest of the low. They were often derided for their demeanour and their behaviour, and they might be treated with suspicion, disdain and disrespect by free settlers and convict men. From the famous title of the groundbreaking book by Anne Summers, first published in 1975, they were indeed seen as either damned whores or God's police, should they marry and civilise some male ex-con. But, of course, the behaviour of some of the convict women did, in fact, confirm these binary perceptions. Mary Pullen was one who may have fit that first stereotype. 27-year-old Mary was sentenced to seven years for theft, arriving in Hobart in January of 1829. As a cook and a washerwoman, she was potentially a useful household worker, and so was assigned to the Reverend Bedford's household. After three months in place, she was, quote, found drunken disorderly, and in bed with one of his servants, <laughs> This outrage saw her sentenced to hard labour. There was another drunkenness charge at her next assignment, and in the following, when she was again found drunk and, harbouring a strange man in her master's house, unquote. Well, some girls just want to have fun, it seems. But it all ends in bread and water in a solitary stone cell if you're caught, doesn't it? Another story recounts the tale of poor Elizabeth Ferguson, only 16 years old and transported for 10 years for theft. In this rare instance, it seems she was a first offender, though her notes record she had been three weeks on the town before she was arrested, which is a euphemism for prostitution. Coincidentally, as I was finishing writing this up, I heard Late Night Live on the ABC Radio National where Philip Adams was talking to the author of James Hardy Vaux's 1819 Dictionary of Criminal Slang. Simon Barnard had published a new edition that gives examples of newspaper articles, evidence and court proceedings where such slang was used. The dictionary apparently was invaluable to the lawyers and magistrates at that time, who had great difficulty understanding the evidence they were hearing. Someone caught buzzing, for example, was picking pockets. And one judge had to be informed that the prisoner who was accused of being a cat-and-kitten-stealer was in fact a thief who stole the plump curved pewter mugs with the curved handles, which to the crime class resembled sitting cats. And one lady in court claimed she did not want to be sent to Gordon's Villa, the name used for the Parramatta Female Factory, run by a Gordon, it seems spanking by the way is when you break glass in order to reach through and unlock the door or window for access i'll put that book in the reference list too in case the idea takes anyone's fancy and of course you can listen to the interview on the late night live podcast on demand too if i had enough time i would have hunted down a copy and checked if on the town was in there but we get the gist though i think it's a way too cheery description for the activity One can hardly imagine that poor Elizabeth had harboured a long desire to join the glittering life of a 19th century working girl. More likely it was a response to some desperation and few other choices, particularly with the risk of disease and pregnancy being so high then. Elizabeth seems to have served her first few years in placements without further trouble, but late in 1847 she was found absent from her work and punished again. She then married the following year and got her ticket of leave in January 1850, which often meant the women were on their way to living a quote-unquote normal life in the community. But for Elizabeth, it was then that things really seemed to fall apart. And I'm sending a pretty fierce look her husband's way just now. In June that same year, she was found in a brothel in bed with a man. Her ticket of leave was revoked and she was given three months hard labour. Released to her husband afterwards, and so here we must be more suspicious of his role in her future activities, she was again found working in the brothel. I am wondering if the powers that be investigated him for perhaps living off the proceeds of prostitution. Thereafter, she underwent a string of further punishments relating to prostitution. She did finally get her freedom, having served out her ten years, but sadly her story suggests she may have just moved to Melbourne and continued her association with brothels there though there's no mention if it was still in cahoots with her husband. I'm speculating, of course, but I imagine this post-married brothel life was one brought about much more by coercion from her husband than a free choice, and I think it reinforces the idea that a certain level of luck was needed too for women to lead lives with more personal agency. By contrast, another 18-year-old, Sarah Waters, who also had her pre-transportation record marked as on the town, was first assigned after her arrival in 1829. She found the arrangements unbearable for some reason, and she absconded a number of times despite further punishments. On one occasion she was apprehended by Constable John Tattersall, and it appears they kept in touch. He was also an ex-convict, and three times in 1831 he requested permission to marry Sarah, but each time was rejected. Somehow a liaison was facilitated and she appears to have had his baby and by May of 1832 he was again appealing for permission. Determined man that he was, he continued his appeals and finally in April of 1833 they did marry. They appear to have had a steady and happy union having ten or more children together and farming near Launceston. So that's nice to hear. But no doubt there was a great deal of non-consensual sexual activity going on too. Mary Ann Carberry reported her master for, quote, taking indecent liberties with her, unquote, just one month after arriving. She told the mistress of the house what had happened and then refused to work for them anymore. But she was not believed by the authorities and was taken away back to the factory to serve six months hard labour for her trouble. A truly horrific outcome for women who were being assaulted, but being in the factory at least kept them from such masters for a time, and the women learned who were the problematic masters and coached each other on how to run away and where to get refuge, rather than submit themselves to the danger. They would, however, have to undergo the punishment for absconding. Historian Kay Daniels notes that the authorities were reluctant to check into the character and behaviour of settlers requesting women before sending them, recording the Hobart magistrate John Price apparently saying that the process of distinguishing between suitable and unsuitable places of service was too inquisitorial. Good Lord. The institution charged with reforming women was going to simply send them into potential danger because checking on the risk at any assignment was too inquisitorial. That is appalling. And while Sarah, mentioned previously, seems to have found a good man in her arresting constable, many did not have such luck. There were instances of constables, often ex-convicts themselves, accompanying the women to and from assignments, and either assaulting them on the way, or actually taking them to town and plying them with drink to be prostituted out. So it was a potentially harsh life of near-slavery for some women. They had so few rights and such little power on the troublesome assignment that committing an offence and being returned to the factory was preferable. In these instances, if you more closely adhered to the middle-class idea of good womanly behaviour and rejected the advances of your master, you could be punished on some trumped-up charge or for running away for your own safety. But on the other hand, if you were up for a bit of hanky-panky, enjoying some intimate male company after hours, that was also a punishable offence. What a system it's almost like it was designed to be a losing game certainly in that era as alexander reminds us good middle-class women were expected to be quiet reserved polite and obedient focusing on their domestic duties but the majority of female convicts were quote ordinary members of the working class they were mostly petty thieves at a time when large sections of the working class accepted theft as a reasonable way to eke out scanty earnings in tough times, Indeed, it was quite possible that while being assigned to a family as a domestic, and remember, it was simply taken for granted at this time by the ruling classes that all women knew how to sew, cook, wash linens, etc. But amongst the convict women, particularly those with a precarious background, eking out a living in the slums, for example, Many may have had no experience of doing laundry or cooking or many of the other domestic tasks that might have been expected of them as a servant in a settler's household. Success, then, might depend on the ability of the settler woman to teach and mentor and perhaps make allowances for the cultural differences in experience. A lot of stars had to align well for it to work, really. Daniels describes it as... "...circumstance rather than character was a powerful factor in determining the fate of convict women in the new environment." Your punishment burden could be heavy or light depending on your luck in the master stakes too. But if they were lucky with their assignment and had little difficulty, they may have been able to serve out their time without further trouble, often having their sentence substantially reduced for good behaviour. Alexander says about a third of the women served their sentence without any further punishment, so that's a positive thought. Of course, these successful women may have been less visible to us today, as public records weren't being added to for the quiet, non-offending, non-troublesome servants. But with men far outnumbering the women, a high percentage of working-class criminals within the communities, and maybe a different acceptance of behaviour and moral code from the many settlers, the potential for further difficulty was high. So, as the incoming convict numbers increased, more formal arrangements for processing and housing the women became pressing. The female factories, as they became known, were created as holding quarters and refuges for single women in the colonies – a place where they could reside, while work and placements could be found for them. And sometimes these facilities were used to house the newly arrived free women too. After all, it was a frontier area they had come to, and the government, inviting free women to come out and help settle the new colony, owed some kind of duty and care for their safety and security. These facilities were also designed as places of secondary punishment for women, for those who reoffended, absconded or misbehaved in other ways that meant they could not stay on at their assigned placement. You know, such as having a strange man in one's room, it seems. Around 40% committed an average of five further offences, according to Alexander, with 20% undergoing more severe punishment. While these institutions could be a place of refuge for those who became ill and unable to care for themselves, I think we could most closely equate what became known as the female factories to a combination of the workhouses in England and an outright prison. Not many would be keen to stay, though there were some who made the best of the asylum and the camaraderie they could find there, and there was at least some safety in the largely female environment in escaping those assignments where the women were at risk. My reading suggests that while most convict women were transported for petty crime and property theft, they were generally repeat offenders, and as mentioned a moment ago, a high percentage were also recorded as reoffending after arriving here, usually for drunkenness, absconding or failure to work. Alexander notes the women convicts that were sent to Hobart were usually English, with only a quarter being Irish, Scottish or Welsh, and they were usually serving a sentence of between 7 and 14 years. Further charges could result in extensions to those sentences, but good behaviour could bring substantial reductions too. As in the rest of the colony, they were generally assigned as household domestics of some sort, to be fed, housed and clothed by the settlers, saving the state the cost. Their skills and experience in domestic service may have varied, as mentioned before, and success may depend heavily on the personalities and arrangements at their assigned placement. It would be hard to remain out of trouble if one's bosses were instigators of the said trouble, for example, but there was a good chance if they were fortunate and could keep on the straight and narrow that they may only need to serve part of their long sentence before they were given a ticket of leave. One woman who seems to have navigated her sentence to some advantage without reoffending was Margaret Shaw a widow with eight children she was charged with theft seemingly a first time offender so this might actually be one of those cases we often used to tell ourselves about the poor good woman stealing only to support the starving family and cruelly transported She was 46, and none of her children appear to have come out with her, so one assumes the elder may have taken care of the younger, but the story doesn't give us any detail about that at all. She came over on the convict ship Rajah, and there is a beautiful quilt housed in the National Gallery of Australia today, which was created by the women on board this transport ship on their journey. It has a small panel stitched in with the following words, To the ladies of the convict ship committee, this quilt, worked by the convicts of the ship Rajah during their voyage to Van Diemen's Land, is presented as a testimony of the gratitude with which they remember their exertions for their welfare while in England and during their passage, and also as proof that they have not neglected the lady's kind admonitions of being industrious June eighteen forty one so a big thanks, middle-class ladies for our punishment is how I read that. <laughs> The British Ladies' Society for the Reformation of Female Prisoners were keen to see the convict women learn useful tasks, such as needlecraft, and they donated fabrics and sewing materials for their use. The result of the work, under the supervision of Kezia Hater was this patchwork embroidery and applique quilt, now known as the Rajah quilt, presented to the 1841 governor's wife, Lady Jane Franklin. I'll be taking a closer look at that the next time I'm in Canberra. Jane Franklin took quite an interest in the plight of the convict women, but she was not very sympathetic to them, and indeed felt that punishment and solitude was required to get them thinking and repenting and improving their behavior. She was not a supporter of allowing women to marry while still under sentence or ticket of leave, as she felt that this was a reward they did not yet deserve. Margaret Shaw, though, was well-behaved on the transport ship and was employed to help the surgeon on board, so was a good candidate to be assigned as a nurse on arrival at Cascades in July 1841. She worked as a nurse and a midwife there for three years and, quote, being exceedingly well-conducted, was granted her ticket of leave in October 1843, just two years later. She appears to have then worked in a paid capacity at the Orphan School in Newtown and became free in September 1847, when the story states she disappeared from the records. I hope that means she was able to return to her family in England. Of course, for most single women, getting your ticket of leave or becoming a free woman still left them in a difficult situation. Women in this era generally could not simply walk away to wherever they liked in Australia and make an instant living. It would be unlikely they could get a well-paid job independently. Freedom? often meant they would simply move into taking private employment in a household, where they could be housed and maintained, and earn a meagre wage. But I'm guessing that when a household could have a convict in there, for just the cost of upkeep, with no wage, there was probably not a lot of call for any but the most proficient paid domestics. More realistically, freedom for the women in this era probably meant they should marry. If they chose well, perhaps they could then run their own household. And with six blokes to every woman, at least they should be able to take their pick. They could marry while still on assignment or serving their ticket of leave, exchanging control from the state for subservience under their husband. But first, the marriage application had to be approved by the government. This is interesting because many convicts may have been married to partners still in Britain. Sometimes a request was rejected clearly on those grounds in the new colony. You might be in luck if you could prove you were widowed. Some would have been recorded as married when perhaps it was more of a common law arrangement, and they might argue that they were not actually married. Marriages might be requested for genuine affection, but more often probably pragmatism. It does seem, though, that with the authorities keen to get as many ex-convicts married off as possible, as Alexander notes, quote, the authorities believed that married men were more likely to settle down and live respectably, while single men with no domestic comforts tended to frequent pubs, drink heavily, and commit crimes. Unquote. That they were quite regularly allowing marriages that were highly likely to be bigamous. Britain was a world away. Even though the government wanted the women married, it was not unknown for the request to be denied, though, and then punishment meted out should they shack up with the prospective husband anyway. A 27-year-old named Nappy Ribbon (laughs) arrived in January 1849 under a seven-year sentence for stealing a sheep. She was immediately assigned and appeared to have been working well at her placement until May of 1850, when she took a stand and refused to continue working for her master, then being sent to the Launceston female factory for punishment. I am tempted to wonder just what was occurring in that household for Nappy to make such a fuss after so many steady months, but one clue might be that she gave birth to a son in January of 1851, though no further details were recorded about him. In April 1852 she was assigned to a new placement and must have been of good behaviour again there because July of that year she received her ticket of leave. It seems she met another convict, William Connor, while at this placement, and though he moved to a new assignment in August of that year, they applied to marry. That request was either ignored or rejected, as no wedding took place, but in October of 1853, both William and Nappy were charged with living in adultery. Good lord, it's not like they didn't try to go legit. They both got six months hard labour, and Nappy lost her leave status, and that appears to have ended their plans to marry and settle. It's crazy and sad, really, because this was just the thing the government actually wanted in the colony. Married, steady, settled ex convicts building new lives. And it did look like there may have been a pregnancy resulting from this relationship too, but the poor little bub did not survive early infancy. She finally gained her freedom in June of 1855, six years into her original sentence. And compared to many others, she really did give the state very little grief. Had they kept their noses out of her and William's bedroom, it would have been even less trouble. She does seem to have married someone else in Port Sorrel in July 1858, by then free and not required to get anyone's permission, though there appears no record of any further children born, apparently. Many of those who returned from initial placements to serve a period of punishment may have done so for what we might now consider pretty minor offences, such as insolence, disobedience or neglect of duty, absconding, drunkenness or lascivious behaviour. And it must be said, apart from the obvious drunkenness, many of these other offences might have been associated with drinking too. One does not always make the best decisions when on the terps. But I mean, who wouldn't want a little escape from that grinding life too if the opportunity arose? Women, as we know, are generally judged far more harshly on their moral behaviour than the men, and this discrepancy would have meant that convict women would more likely be punished for activities that may be ignored in their male counterparts. While convict men were frequently charged with theft, women were commonly charged with offences that were deemed unfeminine in behaviour, like being coarse in their language or attitude, and particularly those offences relating to sexual behaviour and drinking. Both a definite no-no for these convict women. Unless, of course, you were the mistress of someone influential. In that case, whatever he wanted was perfectly acceptable, and everyone else would just look the other way. So you can imagine the potential for getting into trouble was high. And we are talking about years in this system, so it's a long time to toe the line with polite behaviour and suppressed desires. One example of the double standard for bedroom activities on this rare occasion worked to the advantage of a convict woman, Mary Hayes, who arrived in Sydney in 1802. Apparently her daughter was engaged in an affair with Lieutenant Bowman and somehow this usually scandalous arrangement was completely ignored, virtually sanctioned. So I'm assuming that the daughter, at least, was a free woman, and convict Mary was permitted to join their household. No assignment to some unvetted creep for her. Mary seems to have served a trouble-free sentence, though again, in the household of her daughter and her influential partner, she's unlikely to be charged with any offence, even if she did skive off at some point and eventually she gained her Certificate of Freedom. Within ten years, Mary herself had opened what was to become a very successful hotel in Hobart, quote, one of the best and most extensive in the island, unquote, allowing her to assist her granddaughters to a very fine upbringing. Apparently, the taint of a convict past and an illegitimate start in life can be well covered with a good income. <laughs> The Cascades Female Factory Institution itself was one of five that operated in Van Diemen's Land over the convict period, including Hobart Town Jail, Georgetown, Ross and Launceston. And there were eight more in New South Wales, the most notable and first purpose-built being the Parramatta Female Factory. Just as an aside, I will put on the website a link to fabulous resources related to the Parramatta site, including a searchable database. In the early years of the Hobart settlement, new convict women arrivals were immediately assigned to married persons who requested them, and those unassigned had to find their own lodging in town, as I mentioned earlier. During that time, if they were subsequently found committing (laughs) offences, and there was a big list of offences one could be found committing, they were sent to the Hobart jail, which was originally built only to house men, so the situation wasn't ideal. In 1821, then-Governor Sorrell was able to build an extension at the jail site, specifically to house the women. And then those incoming convicts deemed of bad character, and not immediately assigned, were housed there too. That site was located on Murray Street between Macquarie and Davy Streets in Hobart. That new women's facility in the heart of Hobart soon became a magnet for trouble and a problem for the authorities, and the situation was not helped by the chronic underfunding. It was soon perpetually overcrowded, and there was not sufficient work to keep the inmates busy, leading to much sitting around and talking amongst themselves. Oh, oh feisty women gathered, talking, unorganised and unsupervised. Well, they were asking for trouble, weren't they? It was felt in the crowded environment that the new arrivals were likely to be corrupted by the old lags there to be punished. But the overcrowding just increased, and there were complaints of mistreatment and that they were not being fed and clothed properly, resulting in a very tense environment. By 1826 there were riots occurring, as well as breakouts being attempted. Actually, it was apparently quite easy to escape, and even easier to get food and contraband brought in or thrown over the walls at arranged times, indicating a level of internal corruption amongst the guards and authorities. Keep in mind that women were in such demand that it wouldn't be surprising to learn that the guards and police might be easily encouraged to look the other way, to facilitate liaisons, or to take notes and other contraband in, for some reward or favour, and these were apparently not rare occurrences. It had reached such an obvious level of dysfunction that the press began reporting on the disturbing state of affairs. The Hobart Town facility could not provide the women with meaningful work either which was deemed important for the government income to offset the costs and for punishment. So finally, after much pressure and pleading to the New South Wales Governor, Lieutenant Governor Arthur, then, was at last able to purchase a building out of town, which they could develop into a better moral and productive environment for the female factory. The site was purchased from Thomas Lowes in 1827. In 1823, Lowe's had built several high-walled yards at Cascade Grove on the Hobart Rivulet, where the water flowed off nearby Mount Wellington in order to set up a distillery. The Laws had recently changed, allowing distilling, and with a colony full of keen drinkers, he would have expected to make a killing, producing gin and whiskey at the site but only three years later the government had also changed the import tax regime on spirits, making it much less expensive to bring alcohol into the colony, and Lowe's saw his potentially lucrative business become unprofitable. And so, after the sale in 1827, with its securely high walls and appropriate distance from Hobart Town itself, what is now known as Yard 1 was transformed, with two-storey buildings constructed around the perimeter walls into the new cascades female factory the yard was divided into three separate dormitory areas for the women a hospital nursery kitchen and rooms for the officials as well as a small chapel so right away it was pretty cramped and you can imagine with walls and internal buildings two stories high very little sunlight made it into the yards i'll place a link to some drawings of what the yards might have looked like on the web page There are photos you can find on the web, but they're usually from later in the life of the complex. You might wonder why these institutions were called female factories, as we now associate that term with commercial buildings that might spit out objects from an automated production line, for example. And there is a sort of a relationship. These facilities were intended to be places of production. Workhouses where the women would be kept busy, sometimes doing very physical hard labour for long hours as part of their punishment and reform and to simply keep them busy and therefore manageable as well as bring in some income to cover the running costs. The transportation authorities had a great desire that these places be self-funding and not a drain on the purse. The term female factory itself seems only to be used in the Australian penal system. Alexander describes it this way, quote, Factory was the term used throughout the British Empire for a depot, set up in a foreign place to do business, such as factories for trading in India and Canada. In Sydney in 1804, factory meant a depot, and so the term was used for the institution where convict women were temporarily housed. Later, manufactory, a place where goods were manufactured, was shortened to factory, and this took over as the meaning of the word, unquote. It is a weird name, though, and it's sort of confusing to imagine what a female factory might be when you first hear it. Cascades, of course, to the contemporary Australian, is probably more often associated with the Cascades Brewery, which is only just a little further up the road there. And according to a tour I did some years back, was also built in that place for a similar reason to Lowe's sighting of his distillery. That is, access to the clean water flowing off Mount Wellington. Siting the new female factory there was controversial. Housing so many people next to the rivulet in a marshy, damp and often shaded valley beneath Mount Wellington seemed like a bad idea to many, an unhealthy damp and cold site. But others thought that the location, being a good way out of Hobart town, away from the main settlement, would be a much more conducive environment for self-reflection and improvement particularly being away from the men's prison next door, the already corrupt police and authorities within that facility, and away from the townsmen. <laughs> there were media stories welcoming the move. Quote, farewell now to idleness and impudence, love letter writing, throwing of packets etc. over the wall. Unquote. So around 100 women were relocated to the Cascades female factory in December of 1828, and while the allocation of the good women continued, they now had a facility which could house and punish those reoffending. It would provide workshops to facilitate income and provide the hard labour component of those being punished. It would be highly regimented and those deemed difficult would have to work their way to good behaviour and earn the opportunity to be assigned. Here, the rules and regulations for the new House of Correction were issued. Stipulating how the women were to be divided, housed, and treated within their classes, and defining the specific duties each class might undertake. So I'm going to pause our look at the convict women from the Cascades Female Factory here for today. I had very high hopes of exploring this story in one episode, but I get started and discover there is just so much of interest to me. <laughs> I mean, what was I thinking? So once again, I will have to shoehorn what I have found to recount into a couple of episodes before moving on to the next topic. And I'm really interested in starting that next topic. It's going to be completely different. I'm going to delay the podcast recommendation to the end of part two also, but I will post all the accompanying material on the website with this episode entry. Thanks also to those of you who've left me lovely reviews lately. It's very rewarding to see them, and it certainly keeps me motivated to work on the next episode. I'm going to encourage you this month to share the Australian History Podcast links with friends and family, and on your social media too, if you would, in case anyone else would be interested to discover the podcast and join our listening community. So we'll wrap it up now. Thanks so much for listening take care and have a wonderful few weeks and i'll get working on part two (laughs) cheers